it's difficult to be a technology leader. Here at the podcast, we spend our time making it easier for you. And we've gone even farther on this mission than just the podcast. Our goal this year is to help 100,000 technologists level up as leaders with LeaderBits. This could be as simple as you helping level someone else up on your team, you acting as the mentor, or maybe you're a team leader and you're looking to level up into a VP or director role. We are here for you at LeaderBits.io to help you grow as a technology leader. Visit us and ask us all the questions that you have at leaderbits.io. Now, get excited because today we are talking to Slater, the CTO of Indico, and we discuss the global race for AI dominance, how they are working to put AI in the hands of non-technical users, and why Slater made the transition from CEO to CTO. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Oh no, dude. I feel a little guilty. We got like blue skies and it's like 79. Uh, yep, of course. You're in uh, SF? Uh, Florida. Oh, yeah. Well, even better then. Yeah. Um, yeah, we got snow like two or three days ago. Do you ski or do you do any of the snow related activities? You know, I don't see, I grew up in LA, so I kind of miss the whole window for really getting into winter sports in a serious way. Um, And I keep telling myself I'm going to go skiing, but I uh, I haven't done it yet. Yeah, I've been skiing once or twice and it hurt my shins like incredibly bad. Yeah, like I was so sore. I was walking around like crazy (laughs) for two or three days. Oh, nice. Yeah, but it was was an experience nonetheless, right? Yeah, I mean, I figure I should do it at some point. I've, I've tried to go skiing like two or three times, but somehow every time I go, the mountain is closed for some reason. <laughs> it's like <laughs> no later. Yeah, but you did. You, you got the Himalaya one, though. Yeah, want to want to know something crazy? Mm-hmm. It did not snow the whole time I was in the Himalayas <laughs> for like two weeks. Oh um, man! Yeah, and at that point, I was just like, you know, I've never, I had never seen it snow. Actually, at that point, you know, I was like 18 years old. I had been to Boston several times, but just somehow, by luck, every time I go to there, went to places where it's supposed to snow, it would just never snow for me. So, did you do that as like a group? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, definitely don't want to go trekking alone. No, so it was <laughs> like a group of uh, about 10 folks, all kind of between. 18 and 22 so like people taking gap years right before undergrad or uh, kind of between undergrad and, and some kind of grad school nice yeah so yeah. you're just like this is an opportunity i'm gonna go do it you went with a couple friends or uh no i didn't met them all there um oh, cool. didn't didn't know them ahead of time a lot of them you know they were all from the u.s and you know we kind of use this thing to to group up but uh yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I got to kind of the end of high school and I was like, I feel like I've been too intellectual and academic for a long time. I want to get completely outside of my comfort zone and just do something I've never done before. Yeah, I looked at your LinkedIn and you had all these courses you've taken. And the one that stood out to me the, that was the most interesting to me was the identity from the mind and brain. Who am I and how do yes. I know? That was that's a great like, course. That's my style, man. That's who I am. Oh, that's yeah. like what I, how I think. Yeah. No, it was that was wonderful. It was just a lot of case studies and kind of cutting edge psych and you know, like what is the the nature of the self? Um right. like a bizarrely difficult question to answer. Um through kind of the whole course, the professor would hand out these surveys once a week at the end of kind of every set of reading. Um it's this spectrum of between like 
I forget exactly, but it was like physical versus spiritual almost. Like, where do you believe the self lies? Like, how, like, is this a physical existence or just like a mental construct we've come up with? Um, and you see, like, everyone in the class kind of followed the same arc as they went through it, sort of pitching between both sides. Uh, so it was super interesting. Yeah, there was a couple. Um, oh, man, there was just one book. I can't even remember it right mm-hmm. now. But it, I read about it, and or, I'm sorry, I read it, and like the beginning yeah. started with this internal dialogue and it was like, who is reading this right now? And then it, they went on to explain like the difference between your, uh, I think it was called, Oh, there it is. I had to Google it real quick. Untethered soul. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. It was, it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There were two really um, incredible, like I guess sort of case studies we went through. One was just this essay and the thing that the essay said, you know, it's a little gross, but I think it was actually very interesting is um, you swallow like a gallon of spit throughout the day. Right. But if you and you have no issue with it, but if you spit into a glass and then drink it, suddenly that's disgusting. And he used that to kind of paint a point around like how fragile the notion of self is, right? Of like what's inside versus outside, you know, changes, you know, just second to second, even if there's no kind of concrete reality. Um, and then one quote that I just always liked that took me, you know, probably like a year to really understand was this. Uh, it's like a classic like Buddhism quote is, you know, I am an eddy in the stream of consciousness. Um, and what I really liked about that was kind of this notion that the stream of consciousness is kind of the like base reality and that the self is kind of this temporary swirl that you bring up when you need that concept of self, but that it's not actually intrinsic to the way that you think. Uh, I love it because we're getting crazy deep now. <laughs> no, that's, that's the way to do it, right? <laughs> There was a there was a spit that is the way to do it. There's yeah. this spit study that you brought up that yeah. like reminded me of something I, I watched uh, a while back. They took um, saliva and they put it into a dish and then mm-hmm. they had the person in the other room and they didn't tell them that they were doing this. So they separated the person from their saliva and yeah. they had electrodes hooked up to it and then they scared or shocked the person in mm-hmm. the other room and it spiked the on the the energy levels on the saliva. Really. Yeah, and it, it made, like, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I didn't look crazy deep into it, but yeah. on the surface, it kind of made sense because we have all these things in our body that are, like, you know, that are, our processes are autonomous and controlled subconsciously. And yeah. at some point, like, they're communicating with our brain and they're they're far from our brain. Interesting. Right? Yeah. Like, it's an electric signal that goes off from your brain that, you know, makes your hands move. and st- Like, it's, it's yeah. just interesting because it's not all directly like solidly connected. Totally. No, the, the other one that I always hear that I think is along the same vein is when you kind of ask the question, um, does the mind control the body or does the body control the mind? Um, yeah. And there's all these, you know, things where you find, Hey, you know, if you find, and, and it seems like it's, it's a bit of both, right? It's kind of this very Dance. fluid and flexible yeah. two-way path where I, you know, the common example they have is, you know, if you've gone through like a near-death experience with someone and your heart is beating really hard and your, you know, blood is racing, because those are all the same sort of physiological symptoms of also being attracted to someone. When you go through that with someone, you become attracted to them because your body says, hey, I'm seeing all of these signals, or your brain says, hey, my body is sending me all of these signals. Oh, I'm seeing this person. Oh, I must be attracted to this person, even though kind of the cause and effect is flipped. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's super interesting stuff. So then, so then all of this, and then you're like, now, now everyone's interested in like the product you do. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? No, it's I like mean, it's like you're look, crazy. I'm interested so in the product too, right? Uh, one of my professors said, you know, 
the best way to live life is to change your identity every couple of years. Yeah, I do that automatically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what what's in what's Indico? Is that how you say yeah. it? Yeah, Indico. Yep. Okay. Um, so at a super high level, we're a machine learning platform to help subject matter experts automate document based processes that they do in kind of their day to day. It shows up in in sort of a lot of different flavors. So let me give just one sort of concrete example to make it tangible. Uh, So something like contract analysis, right? As a legal team, we get this contract document and at a large organization, what we have to do is split it up into various sections and send it to different groups within the organization, right? So I've got to send the fee schedule to finance. I've got to send the derivative restrictions to the investment team. Um, and that's a totally manual process, right? I go through, I read it, I segment it into different uh, kind of objects, and I send it out in emails. Um, so we've basically got sort of a machine learning intelligence layer immediately beneath that that works primarily on text, but also on, on images and, and kind of other data types um, that can learn from those actions you're taking with very, very small amounts of data. So, you know, you give it kind of seven seven contracts and say, hey, here's how I break these up. Here's how I send it out to people. And it's effectively a platform for kind of non-technical people to use this machine learning layer effectively to uh, kind of augment their day-to-day activities. Um, that makes sense? Yeah. So what you, what you have is you kind of have a, like these suite of tools and then you're applying some business logic to, to show how you're using some of the tools. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? So it's like you get this uh, kind of visual programming language that says, you know, grab from my email, send it through this machine learning model, and then, you know, send this section over to the finance department. That's smart. Well, like, it'll, so it'll like split PDFs and stuff? Yeah, totally. So split PDFs, Word docs, you know, if you want to do it for like customer support routing, things like that, um, you know, sort of the the whole gambit. Nice. So yeah. it... it this is interesting. There, there's actually this other company that I was talking with, and they, they don't do this, but they were doing machine learning uh, on contract analysis, but from a legal standpoint of like the is it Kira. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, I know. I know them super well. Yep. Um, oh, no, okay, so, cool. Yeah. So we do sort of similar things, and and maybe the big difference because it might be a good comparison is Kira does a really good job of addressing sort of the needs around that for a law firm. Um, right. So, you know, they've got it built out as a sort of industry solution, really, for legal, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And the way that we attack it a little bit differently is that we would use, for instance, that same use case, really, um, but we would do it kind of through the corporate law arm because they're really focused, mostly because they have a much more kind of messy flow. Um, It's not as kind of regimented and well-defined as a law firm. So mm-hmm. you think of it as a generic version of Kira that is very good at tackling especially messy problems. Nice. Yeah, we had I've had Alex on last week, the oh, CTO cool. of Kira. Yeah, Dude, no, he's an awesome person. I, I really like their company. And, you know, honestly, the University of Waterloo, um, I think, is kind of the unsung hero of Canada. <laughs> I, I don't know much about the Canadian university culture to know this. Oh, no, so <laughs> I'm going to trust you, though. No, so fun fact about machine learning uh, and kind of like AI in general is that like Canada, to be crass, is kicking the crud out of the U.S. Um, so University of Toronto and University of Montreal uh, are like the number one and number two universities for cutting edge AI in the world. Really? Yeah. Um, wow. Like, yeah. And, you know, NYU also kind of like, is you know, is in the top three. Um, and then you've got 
and then even like Stanford, which I think gets a lot of press in the US or like CMU, you know, are kind of a very solid second tier. Um, but they're really specializing in kind of like older, less, you know, hip techniques, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then University of Waterloo has a lot of connections to Montreal and Toronto and people don't really think about it because people don't really think about Canadian universities at all. But University of Waterloo is really, really sharp and, and strong kind of machine learning department. You know, I spend some time thinking about languages, like other languages, mm-hmm. um, like complete, like spoken languages yeah. and what they're doing at their universities. And like, if we're even paying attention to how far ahead people who speak other languages are. <laughs> it's, it's a super, you know, the one of the dirty little secrets in ML is just we do everything in English, like right. in English. Um, and, and kind of the other issue is just from like a research accessibility perspective, there's so little support if you want to publish anything that's not in English. Um, the same way English has become kind of the language of business, it's also become the language of academia. And there's a lot of trouble right now, which is that we don't really know what it would take for most of the kind of like modern ML and AI we're developing to bring it over to other languages, right? We've got like a very small amount of insight, you know, are there small little journals, you know, and China is the only really big one because they're huge and they have their own kind of internal journals that are just written in Chinese. Mostly what we do is we just throw up this big barrier in front of people publishing research in other countries and say, look, you got to submit it in English. Yeah. So I, I read an article, um, this is in some like New York post or wired or something. And it was talking about how China is setting out to do like the space race, but for AI and to, and to win the race. Interesting. They're Did you see that one? Uh, no, I, I haven't. I mean, uh, Microsoft research, uh, has been based in China for, for quite a while. Um, I was trying to find it real quick, but yeah, they, well, apparently one of their political leaders announced it similar to how, when we announced the space race, you know, we, we went on TV through the media and we said, we're going to beat everybody to space and we're going to do it. And then like Russia came out and was like, we're going to like, and then all of a sudden yeah. there's all these countries battling over space. Well, China, the article was not about China doing this. It was about how China did this and the U S did not respond. <laughs> that's what the article yeah, I mean, that's super interesting. <laughs> I mean, have you been following, I guess what Canada has been doing in a similar way? No, this is all new for me. Oh, yeah. No. So Canada has made this. I mean, so my guess, and maybe I'm a little jaded, China was probably poking at the US, but who they're really poking at from a research perspective is Canada, Um, because Canada is the one to be. Canada has been investing hundreds of millions of dollars just directly granting to research universities. I mean, we work with uh, a bunch of state departments in Canada that are entirely devoted to exercising kind of AI and, and machine learning as a country advantage. Um, Justin Trudeau, believe it or not, actually speaks more intelligently about AI and machine learning. I like uh, him. He's, he's awesome. He's, he's shockingly technical. He, he actually knows what he's talking about more than half the data scientists I talk to, to be honest. Um, it's so cool to see a geek up there, like also yeah. running, running the country. <laughs> it's, it's totally nuts. And it's, it's awesome. But no, I mean like, uh, sorry, Canada is just funneling money into these universities because they kind of lucked into this massive competitive advantage and i'll say i'm disappointed with the u.s's response in that it's seriously lacking like europe like england they've all got great responses their university have been very quick to adopt i mean the u.s is getting there but it's so slow like if you go to canada.ai because i'm just researching this while Mm. you're talking yeah uh, because i'm really interested 
at the top of the at the top of the site, man. You can join their Slack channel. Right. This is like a government. This is like a government based thing. I'm like, oh my god, they're gonna move so fast. Yeah, absolutely, and they already have been, right? I mean, University of Montreal and University of Toronto just don't need money anymore because the Canadian government is just writing them hundreds of millions of dollar checks. It's like any AI company in Canada, I believe, will get any VC money they raise matched like one to one by the Canadian government, which is just mind blowing, right? Um, you can never imagine the U.S. working that way. You're not battling, you know, Elon Musk having to rip out <laughs> cash out of his own pocket, right? Right. You're, you have the, the the country treating it like a race and saying, "Look, we've got these universities where the smartest people are. Let's just flood cash to them, right? To to so that we can win this AI race." Because I'm telling you, what, dude, somebody's winning this AI race. Exactly, and that's and that's kind of the thing. And I think the U.S. just has kind of a habit of resting on our laurels too much, right? You know, we've been the top top dog in academia for so long, we've forgotten what it's like to not be the top dog. And so even when someone's shown up and is eating our lunch, we don't even realize it's happening. Yeah, we, we need we need more of a technology presence and we need somebody that's not like an 80 year old five star general leading it. Yeah, no, that that's exactly it, right? I mean, and we're kind of trying, but I really think the U.S. at, at a federal level, right? Because the private sector in the U.S., right, we're still like kicking the crap out of tech, right? But the government has just lagged so far behind, and they're so reticent to bring anything in, and you know, it, it really doesn't feel like we've made significant motion uh, in the right direction, even in recent history. It feels like we're still behind. We need the coming together of a common goal. Like when we did the space thing, the whole yeah. country was united. Like I went back and watched some movies. There was actually a recent movie where it was like the girls behind the space uh, project. It was, uh, yeah, it was actually um, pretty good. Hidden Figures, right? Yeah, it was. Re- it was Such really a good. Movie. I that was an incredible movie. Right, but it showed how like the cop literally like backed off his racism because they were part of this program that yeah. was like you know it, it it progressed our whole country and all of us together as a society. Because we were working together. It did. And unfortunately, I mean, I think today, so much of this has just been set up as, as this battle almost, right? Where people hate Silicon Valley, right? And Silicon Valley is like very isolated from the rest of the country. And they think of it as this like crazy ivory tower. Um, and, and something about that accessibility and something about this notion of just playing for the same team, it, it feels like it's been lost. I mean, the U.S. feels much more at odds, and I'll say specifically kind of academia um, and kind of, you know, the U.S. feels today much more anti-intellectual than it has been at any time in the past. And that means it's really hard to start up any of these endeavors, right? Because if we say, hey, look, everyone get behind this academic endeavor, which is what the space race was and what the AI race would be, people are kind of sour on it, right? And, and I think it's a tragedy, well, I think it's also a lot to do with our media because yeah. if you're in Canada, what you're seeing on TV is you're seeing your leader being very smart, talking about these new things and and really trying to make a change and pull the community together for this one common goal, right? But if you turn on our media, you do not have that. You've got monkeys uh, flinging mud at each other, right? That's what yeah. it feels like um, every day. And it's, yeah, it's, it's just a tragedy, right? I mean, what was, yeah. you know, house divided cannot stand. Right. And that is correct. Yeah. And when we're always talking about, you know, the divisions in politics or the divisions in geography or the just all the negativity, like, I mean, I'm sure bad things happen in Canada. Totally. Right. Like, yeah, absolutely. For humans, it's it's a statistical thing when you collect a population. Right. Yeah. But they're like putting smart stuff on the airwaves and 
putting money into the universities. And now when the, now when the next generation thinks, oh, I can make a lot of money by going into AI because that's what they see in their in their environment. Our generation seeing, I can make a lot of money by having sex videos and putting them online. Yeah. Or I can make a lot of money. Yeah. And it's just, there's so much like hate and vitriol, right? And it's just so much of what I think kind of pervades the discussion today is it feels like people don't know how to have respectful conversations anymore. Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously that's a bit of an exaggeration, but, but it still feels like that day to day. And, you know, people get, so exasperated that they're not even willing to reach across the aisle anymore. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, the country has a mood and we need to be conscious of it, yeah. know what it is and know where we want it to go. Right. And and that's right. the thing is uh, I think that a lot of people aren't willing to shoulder a mantle of blame. And I think blame and, and forgiveness and kind of moving forward, the nation needs to take a big step because we're not in a good place right now. Yeah. Well, so I'll, we'll start reaching out to people. Yeah. Yeah. Look, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's the plan, right? Yeah, I, I uh, reached out to this. There's there's like one other uh, outlet that has tremendous uh, exposure in the CTO space. Yeah, and it's this guy CTO Vision. His name's Bob or Robert, and he has you know thirty thousand plus CTOs on that read his his content and participate in his site. And so I reached out to him. I'm like, hey, we need to get together and figure out how we can you know bring technology people together to do stuff because no one else is out there doing it. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, one thing that I try to be super conscious of is anytime there's another ML or AI company out there, right, whether it's a student that's just trying to get their feet wet, right, or or even a competitor, right, I just always try to give advice, right? Like anytime I can help, you know, I really strongly believe that rising tide floats all boats. And, and I think most people get behind that. But, you know, there's definitely a more competitive and you know, I'll say a lot of technologists today are more concerned with making themselves seem legitimate than trying to solve a problem. Um, and I think that's is kind of another problem, right? Is that you know you got to start from a place of compassion, and wanting to help one another, uh, and then if you get there, and if you all kind of feel like you're rowing in the same direction and you're on a team and not really adversaries, I think that we can do a lot more. Yeah. We, that's that's how it works, right? You can yeah. make more friends with honey than vinegar. <laughs> no, it's actually, you know, uh, apparently bees are more attracted to vinegar than, or flies rather, are more attracted to vinegar than honey. Oh, well, I don't want fly friends. Oh, yeah, I, yeah the, the <laughs> yeah. So, so you were, uh, originally you're the CEO, yep. and I'm assuming the founder of, of Indico, and then you transitioned now to CTO. Tell me a little bit about that, how that happened, and what came about. No, I mean, it, it was, so I'll say, first off, it's been awesome. I've been really, really filled with that transition. Um, I think one of the big kind of changes is that when Indico was founded, we had this big assumption that um, AI was ready for adoption, right? We said, hey, look, you know, people have been working on this for 15 years. There's been a really big lag in terms of what people are actually using in industry. Um, we think it's ready. And from a technology perspective, we were right. And the idea is if you're bringing just kind of this technology out to developers, which again was kind of the original thesis, um, you kind of want a CEO that's very sharp on the technical side that can be kind of respected by developers, right? And that's kind of the primary focus. And I, I did a good job of filling that role, right? And you get have a CTO that's much more down to the weeds and driving architecture decisions day to day, uh, producing content, things along those lines, right? But the content is kind of super technical directed at developers. Um, mm -hmm. And what we kind of realized is that for all the talk about it, adoption is really painfully slow uh, and the enterprise is absolutely terrified. Um, 
and, and the problem is when it's not an established business case, developers don't get kind of the missive to go and adopt it, right? You know, because the business is still afraid to push for its adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, so we found that there was a really big desire in the enterprise to to kind of adopt things, but it's not that it's not developers that were doing the driving, right? It's not mature enough for that to be the case. Um, so I basically had this realization. I'm like, look, we've got to go after the enterprise, right? And that gives us this huge hurdle to pass in terms of sales and marketing expertise, right? And kind of driving what the vision is going to be like if our goal is to really get this into the hands of people who are willing to adopt it. And and correspondingly, it also meant that there was this big gap where what we needed to speak to was kind of the um, enterprise developer, right? And there was sort of this big need in the CTO role to say, hey, how do I explain to people what on earth AI is. Um, and, and so it was kind of those two things together. We're like, hey, look, we've got to go after a new market, right? The vision of this company is changing. And I just sat back. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know how to do this, right? Like I can speak to developers. I can go after them and I can build something around that. But that's not what we need. Um, so said, look, let's bring in a new CEO, right? Let's find someone who's really, really good at solving that problem. And then effectively everything I was doing before now fits really well into the CTO role. Uh, and so that's about how it went, um, made the transition. Kind that's, of, you know. that's a great way for it to go. Yeah. No, I, no, no, like crazy hostile takeovers here. No, I mean, I, I you know, I had to twist oh, my, no, I didn't arms. imagine what, well, the, what I, what I want is because we have a lot of experienced CTOs, mid-level CTOs and aspiring CTOs. So your story from that, what I want them to feel is the ability to be comfortable and, and in stepping back or going to a different position and, and finding where they want to be and then getting others around them and filling their gaps because that's what's successful and that's something you have to go through. So by them hearing how you went through it, that brings value to them. Yeah, I think one thing that was interesting, right? I've always been excited about it, right? I push for it and it's been probably the best change I could have made. But when I first talked about it to people, the reaction I got wasn't, oh, awesome, you found out what the appropriate role is, you're setting into co up for success, you know, that's your job as a founder, kudos, right? The reaction instead was, oh, you know, don't feel so bad that you failed, right? I'm like, what the hell are you talking what? about? But, but that's, <laughs> that's what they hear, right? They're like, oh, you know, you're going to lose face with the board, you're not going to be able to control the company anymore because you're no longer the CEO, you're the CTO now. Um, and I just think it's so, it's the wrong mentality. By the way, Slater, you doing that is the most CEO thing you could have possibly done. <laughs> that's one person told me that, and that's what finally pushed me over the edge, right? Yeah. So, like, look, your job as the CEO and founder is to do what's right for the business. And if you know what's right for the yes. business, then do it. And right. it is that simple. It is that simple. <laughs> everyone else is just everyone. So how big is the team now? How big is the organization currently? Yeah, so we're, including contractors, about 15 Cool. And your primary line of business, how you guys are, are making money is the contracts, uh, splitting and analysis, stuff like that? Yeah, it, it's stuff along those lines, right? So we're primarily in kind of insurance, uh, financial services, uh, and a bit in media as well. Oh, very cool. We had a guy on the show yesterday um, from kin.com, K-I-N.com. Uh, they're, yeah, just a, they're an insurance company that's exploding. I mean, they've gone from seven people to almost 100 in the past year. Oh, awesome. That's, that's always awesome seeing startup explode like that. Yeah, they're cutting out the insurance agent. <laughs> that's a great <laughs> idea. Yeah, but it's already been done for auto, but they're doing it for home now. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's actually, 
sorry, there's another company in the current Techstars Boston class that's trying to do that same thing, but I, I can't remember the name to save my life. It's all right. Yeah. Uh, but, but a lot of them, there's room for a lot of them to play. I mean, they're, only, they're growing that fast. They're only doing it in two states right now, Slater. Oh, my goodness. I mean, yeah. that's, what, that's one of the crazy things is I think that people have a very poor understanding of insurance and exactly how it works, right? Um, you know, it, it's really just a risk pool at the end of the day. And it's a very old industry that hasn't changed much. I mean, Lloyd's of London is still in operation, right? And they still operate the same way they used to. They were the first insurance company. um, What, they were founded in, uh, actually, I just looked up, 1871. And insurance hasn't fundamentally changed since 1871. Um, (laughs) And and it's mind-blowing. And it means that both there's a lot of potential for new insurance companies kind of radically changing the way that insurance is bought and sold. It also means there's a lot of great space for people like us that says, hey, look, we're going to work with the existing insurance companies to bring themselves into the 21st century uh, because they're still in the 19th, a lot of them. Yeah, and all you have to do is find the angle to show them that they can take market share from their competitor. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, right? That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Look, you're going to do it better, faster, cheaper. And they're like, and then if you, you convince them of that and show them and they believe it, then they roll with it. Yeah, it's just uh, now there's, you know, there's one more hurdle of, of convincing them that the robots aren't going to take over. But uh, <laughs> figuring that one out. So what are you most excited about right now with Indico? Oh, man. I mean, I'm so our, our mission has changed a lot um, effectively between making this attractive to developers to making this attractive to SMEs and non-technical users. And that's what I'm really excited about. Um, People assume that it's not possible, right? That you cannot take something as technical as machine learning and AI and actually wrap it in a way that's palatable and accessible to non-technical users like non-programmers. And I want to prove them wrong, right? I, I fundamentally believe, right, you know, it's kind of like think about it like Wix, right, or, or any of those kind of site building attempts. For, yeah, for, Squarespace. Yeah, Squarespace, great example, right? It's prettier. <laughs> for for decades, you know, and even still today, people say, "Look, there's no way that can work, right? You can't make website building, or I guess WordPress is another obvious one. Um, you can't make website building accessible to a non-technical user. Um, you know, no matter how far how far you push it, right, it's never going to be accessible to them. And they were proven wrong, right? You look at all of these incredible things and how radically more accessible it is. You know, the fact that WordPress is driving, whatever, like 70% of websites on the internet are WordPress or something like that, just shows that it's tremendously powerful. And and I think engineers have a tendency to believe that individuals will just get more technical with time and that'll solve the problem. And I'm excited to actually hold ourselves to a higher standard, right? And actually say, look, because today it is still developers and data scientists using it, right? You know, they, right. they're not outside of the process. And, and I want to maybe not remove them entirely, but I want to bring the SME front and center. I want to make them feel like this is a tool that gives them a bionic arm. And What's not, the SME? Sorry, the subject matter expert. It's ah, just like okay. a kind of generic term that we use for some expert, like a, a lawyer, right? Or someone who's reviewing contracts or sort of the... Wait, I just hadn't heard the acronym before. Uh, no, no, it, it's super reasonable. It, the acronym gets used for a few different things, um, yeah, so just a, a non-technical person that knows their domain very well. Yeah, because that's what you, you want to resource them so that they can build with your tools. And exactly. when you get people building with your hammer, you become an awesome hammer company. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the plan, right? Um, 
No, I mean, I think the same way that, you know, today you see it with a lot of uh, a lot of these SMEs that have basic programming knowledge that say, hey, you know, I figured out how to automate my job six months ago. And now I just sit around and press a button once a day, um, which is on the one hand, kind of crazy. But on the other hand, is this incredible empowerment, right? The fact that someone can, again, like construct this from themselves soup to nuts. And, and I want to make that possible without four years of engineering education or 10 yeah. years in some cases. Yeah, it should be easier. So with, with your stuff, you, you explained the, the supercharging, the document workflow product. You explained that very, very well, but I didn't, I didn't really get that. And then you also have explained this whole, uh, goal of that you're working towards and the motivation behind it and the why of where you want to go with this sort of very easy, um, way that a SME or a common person that's an expert can simply use the technology and interact with it. But I didn't see like visualizations of that on the site when I was poking around. That's because we're still building it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's very, so th this transition to kind of the enterprise was like an opportunistic, pretty recent one for us. We actually just opened kind of a closed private beta to some of our power users um, two days ago. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. So no, so I mean, it's a, uh, yeah, that's that's why you haven't seen kind of the visualizations. We're also kind of halfway through a, a big site revamp, which everyone's going through a site revamp, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there's that a, is so true. Yeah, look, We're I mean, always, it, yeah. the site always lags behind whatever you're building by six months. It just because <laughs> it takes six months for you to really be sure that the change you've made is the right one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh man, thank you so much for hanging out with us. No, no, no worries. Um, you're the best. <laughs> Always happy to chat. You don't yeah. want to talk about voice at all in the last five minutes? Oh, yeah. Right. I didn't know you were, I, I just figured you were having a bad day or something. I was. No, you're right. <laughs> I also I just, like, uh, I get cranky about voice. You get cranky about voice? Yeah. Let's hear it. But by the way, just so you know, heads up, we got like the leaders of the Alexa team Perfect. on like next week. So if you want to say anything to them. <laughs> I, I think Alexa is a good product. Um, yeah. I, I have no beef with Alexa. Um, the problem I have is that people have this vision that voice is some fundamentally transformative technology that's going to change the way that we interact with our computers. Um, right. This is kind of, you know, I hear this pitch all the time of a voice first operating system where we're going to do everything by talking. And the problem is that you, you, you do, I, I have not. You no, know, yeah, I hear people talking about that all the time as a desirable thing, you know, voice-based interfaces. And, and I think the thing that people fail to realize is nobody wants that, right? You know, do you want to no longer use your finger to interact with your phone and instead use your voice? No, of course you oh, don't, because you don't want, want to be shouting into your phone in the middle of a busy subway. Like, you feel inconsiderate as an individual, and it's just a bad user experience. Um, there's but I want the neural net. What about the neural net? About the, yeah, <laughs> That's what I, mean, I want. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, look, having something intelligent as an assistant that does, you know, very specific point things for you. Like the thing that's great about Alexa is that it's it's a very small number of things that it does. And it's things that are actually useful in a voice scenario, right? But yeah. I think that people assume it's a more useful interface than it actually is. I think that Alexa is close to the peak of what voice is really going to enable uh, and what it should be used for. I see it as more like you got a keyboard, you got a mouse, you got the Alexa, mm, right? Yeah. Like it's it's not a replacement of, it's complementary to. Right. And there's very good uses for it. Like when I'm in the shower and I want to listen to Tony Robbins, right? <laughs> totally. Just, right. 
and then it's great for passive like voice is also getting the line blurred with the things like the podcast and stuff like that where we're consuming audio content like in the car. Yeah. Right. So people are are mixing voice. I don't see it as a replacement by any means, but what I do see it as is and I have been asking a lot of people about how they see voice fitting into their business because mm-hmm. um it's a great marketing thing right now because we only have about a tw- 10 to 20% mass market adoption over the next five years will probably get up to about 80% Mm -hmm. of consumers actually having them in their houses. If you look at like the sales trends. So what I'm saying to people is now is the time to find an excuse to make a little sales video of you telling your Alexa to do like I told, I was talking to the insurance guy. I said, why don't you be the first to buy insurance, buy home insurance through an Alexa saying, Alexa, get you to secure the fortress and be like, she'll ask you what the address is. And then she gives you a quote, right? Like, because that's an amazing, like, we have us, Slater, yeah. we have the people that are in it, mm-hmm. and then we have the market, which is the consumers. Totally. And they're 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 a decade behind. Yeah, right? they, they are. So they, they think it's cool, and they will buy insurance just to tell their friends they bought it through Alexa. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of value there, right? I think there's yeah. a lot of really powerful point applications of it, and I think it's going to be, like you said, kind of a good technology. I think the only thing that kind of grates on me, right, is that I think people make it out to be something that it's not right? It's not going to change. You know, you're not going to, like you said, you're not going to replace your keyboard with a voice interface. Nobody wants that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, super useful for, uh, you know, sending a text while you're driving because, you know, you don't want to be distracted, right? A lot of really valuable point use cases, big implications for the consumer. You know, I think that the transformative interface change that we're still waiting for is effectively, you know, leap motion, no, tell me about this. It was in like uh, 2013 they shipped, but it was this little thing that they were supposed to build into your computer. Um, they did this, I think, for a couple of people. It was hand tracking, right, and gesture recognition. Oh, I did see that where you like, uh, you know, do the, I got, I know, where you turn the lights on by, you know, putting your thumb and index finger together. That was the Mayo. Uh, actually, okay. but similar concept. Um, Gestures. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that there's a really big gap in haptic gesture technology and it's really far behind where people want it to be the leap motion i only brought up because they were a great example of someone that like dramatically over promised and they're just like fundamental technological approach was bad um and i think people don't realize how big that gap is like our most advanced haptic technology today just in terms of being some kind of tactile feedback is rumble packs which we had back in the n64s all right um, <laughs> i love that man yeah it's yeah and and i just think it's so ripe for disruption um i think that if you could physically interact with technology because that's not really possible today. I think there's incredible applications of that. I think that is a much more transformative change that we're going to see actualize in the next five to 10 years. I'm excited for it because if you think about it, 130 years ago, we got electricity. Look where we're at today. <laughs> Goodness, that is a trip. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved, I love, that's like one of my favorite lines because I was, you know, reading about how um, everyone would go to the, movie theaters because they were the first ones to have air conditioning and just before that we had electricity right so it became like commonplace and so i'm thinking to myself i'm like every for all the doubts and everything like that we talk about about how far things are off and stuff like that like if you just think they're like what grow 130 years ago like think about it. there's there's that means there's people today alive today that remember when electricity got put into their house 
Oh yeah, that's just when it was available. Right. Like it definitely took, you know, a decade or two to spread. And it's right? mind blowing. Um, one of the other things that I just always kind of am stymied by, internet access today, you know, which, you know, launched, let's say in 92, 50% of the planet has access to the internet. Um, and I looked this up. How much of the world do you think has access to potatoes? <laughs> potatoes, right? Because you figured well, everyone has food is regional. Well, no, food's re- well. You know, I have. I don't know. It's go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm going to ruin it for no. you because I have like family all over the world, and like yeah. certain foods aren't available in no, certain places. Exactly right. So it's about twenty percent. Twenty percent of the world has access. Twenty percent. Yeah. Wow. Really low. Um, it's mostly the Americas, and fifty percent of the world has access to the internet. Right. So. What about clean water? It's like, I think it's only like 50%, seven, I'm sure. Less than 50? Oh, wow. I think I can look this up right now. Um, but but kind of regardless, I think that's one of the things that's just been really incredible to me, right? Is I think seeing when there is a transform new, te- new technology here and everyone is really rowing in the right direction and in the same direction, getting it implemented, um, things can happen really fast. Have you ever heard of that, that the Segway guy, the Dean? Yes, Dean Kamen. He's a horrible human being, by the way. He's a horrible human being? (laughs) He's an awful human being. Oh my goodness, do you have an interaction with him? Uh, Yes, uh, I'll tell one story of him that is public. Uh, Dean Kamen was making a new pacemaker. uh, And and one of the engineers, who's a a very good friend of mine and an excellent engineer, recognized there was a security flaw. Uh, an awful security flaw because it was kind of an internet-enabled pacemaker and he basically found a security issue in their wireless stack. And it meant that you could trivially make, you know, think of a hand grenade type thing, could be entirely wireless, just powered with local battery, that would just deactivate all of the pacemakers in a wide radius. Oh my goodness. And that's terrifying, right? Yeah. So he found that and he told Dean Kamen and he said, hey, look, we found the security issue. And Dean Kamen said, great, don't tell anyone. And then, and, and that, that I think really just sums it up. I mean, eventually he, he went out to the media. He's like, no, I can't do this. People are going to die, right? I don't care if Dean Kamen, you know, wants his check or whatever it is. Uh, and Dean Kamen fired him because he said, you know, how dare you tell people that they were in mortal danger? Uh, and that's not even the worst thing he did. Oh my goodness. Cause like here I yeah. saw his little documentary and I was like, oh, he's getting water to all the people that need the water. Yeah, he, he thinks very highly. Yes, yeah, I have. He thinks very highly of himself and is very good at pitching himself as an innovator. Um, you also know, you know the hoverboards that everyone wants that they invented in China? Yeah. You want to know why you can't import them into the U.S.? Why? Dean Kamen. Um, because he's made this claim and because he's rich enough and ingratiated with the right people, he has asserted that any import of them into the United States violates his Segway patents. So they're not coming in anymore because they were here. No, right? So he worked out individual licensing agreements with some people, but the only way that you could get the hoverboards was through these one-off directly dealing with wholesalers. There, the U.S. was not legally allowed to import them. That's why they were so hard to get. Oh, wow. Dean Kamen, not a great guy. It's just sour grapes because no one wanted the Segway. All right. Slater's best friend, Dean Kamen. No, just- <laughs> Dean Kamen. <laughs> Oh um, man, that is so. And he yeah. is he in your area too? Like, is uh, he in Boston area? I don't think he is right okay. now. I, I don't know. He he's close with a couple of close friends with mine. Close friends of mine. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, thanks to your friend for like you know saving the IoT pacemaker explosion hack. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, he's he's a great guy and a great engineer. Now, do you own an Alexa? No, I don't. Do you own any, uh, any voice thing at all? Uh, nope, no voice thing at all. I've built voice systems, but I've yeah. never owned one. So, so here's what happened. So, I only got one like at Christmas time. My my wife surprised me with one, and oh, I was nice. so reluctant. Man, I don't ever talk to the Siri. I don't ever like. I for some reason, I guess I'm just old. Like it feels weird. <laughs> yeah. But but then I'm getting my hair cut and like she's tell, the person cutting my hair is telling me about like how her daughter's in love with Alexa and like all her friends they talk to Alexa and then my little nephews are like in love with Alexa they always they run up to their mom 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 can I ask Alexa to tell me a joke and she's like <laughs> okay did you do your chores yeah okay you can go ask <laughs> these kids are That's infatuated awesome. with it Slater I love that That's I so know. cool And when I see that in life I can't ignore it yeah. I, I'm not a normal consumer by any stretch, right? Like I didn't <laughs> I get a smartphone until like three years ago. So, I mean, the fact that I don't use it doesn't mean it's not a great product. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't, I'm, I'm officially at the age where I no longer understand kids. I've just accepted that. <laughs> maybe maybe you'll have some soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrifying thought. <laughs> Dude, I, I just had my, my daughter. If you would have talked to me two years, three years ago, I would have been like, you're crazy, man. Yeah, but like I don't know what happened. It just kind of like it just happened. Yeah, and then I love yeah, look, it. That's, now that's I love life, it. right? Yeah, <laughs> I've heard that from a lot of people. So, uh, but it's you know, so we'll great. See. Like it's not great yeah. when you're not, and it's like it's like food. It's like not great when you're not in the mood for it or you're not hungry. But yeah, but you can instantly get hungry. Like you can get hungry real fast. Yeah, just like you can get you know happy to see your daughter. Yeah, no, I got I got baby real fast. Like I was like, yeah. all of a sudden I was like. Oh man, I woke up one day and I'm like, I want a kid. Like it was like a genetic yeah. switch flipped. Really? Yeah. I'm not how, kidding you. How how old are you? Just so I can know when the when the switch is gonna flip for me. My switch flipped uh 28, 29. So I'm I'm, I'm I've got a couple years. I'm 30. Yeah. Oh, I'm telling yeah. you what, man. There was, it was the farthest thing from my mind. I was like, never, yeah. never, 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 never. I woke up one day, boom. I was like, yes, I want a kid. And it wasn't like I saw someone or yeah. anything like like I just woke up that morning and I was like I want to, I want to reproduce. It was like a really yeah. a, a human animal thing. Like you're hungry, you know? Goodness. All right. I'll, I'll start the clock. I'll watch out for it. <laughs> Thanks for the heads up. Yeah. It's, it just yeah. let it get you by surprise, you know? <laughs> no, no, I, I get, I, not the first person I've heard that from. No, I, <laughs> an uncle is just like, look, trust me. I know life doesn't make sense right now. Once you have a kid, everything's going to make sense. It, it's so insane. And I'll tell you what, business wise, like I was motivated before yeah. and building products and stuff, but like another switch flips when you see their face and you're like, oh my God, I got to go out and do I got to go out that front door and change the world for this little monkey. You know, that is awesome. Yeah. That is incredible. That's something that I'm, I'm holding on for. Yeah. So you'll have an Alexa and a little one and you'll text Perfect. me. You'll be like, Joel, you crazy, man. It happened. <laughs> yeah. Look, I've, Hey, I, I'll have the little one use the Alexa so I don't have to deal with it. See, uh, delegate. Exactly. Just like you move from CEO to CTO, you have the little one run the Alexa. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Dude, um, it was so great yeah. hanging out with you. Thank you so much. Total pleasure chatting. Yeah. All right. If people want to find out more about you, how would they do that? Uh, look at Indico.io. Just Google Slater Boston. I'm the only one here. Or Dean Kamen's number one fan. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, I should show up there. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to help, please take a moment right now to open up the iTunes app and leave a review of the podcast. If you take a screenshot of the review and text it or email it to a friend who needs to listen to the podcast and then CC me, 
joel at moderncto.io. If you see me on the email, I'll send you a copy of the Modern CTO book or give you a shout out on the podcast, whichever you prefer. We're trying to get listed on the top 100 for iTunes, and I need your help in order to do this.